Good morning. Great to see you all today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 2. This is uh, the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it was the first one that was written. Uh, Mark was probably the first gospel that was penned. And as Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels, they used Mark's gospel, uh, which preceded theirs. Uh, it's called the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Mark was a... Uh, disciple of the Apostle Peter. And so actually when we open the Gospel of Mark, we're reading Peter's account of things. That's not something we think of too often. But uh, Mark was close to Peter and these are uh, Peter's remembrances of, uh, of the life of Christ and his time with him. Uh, we are in a section that describes Jesus' growing conflict with the uh, religious authorities of his day. We'll see that again this morning. Uh, there are about five accounts of conflict that begin in chapter 2, and the conflict builds. It'll climax in chapter 3, verse 6, where they begin to plot how to destroy Jesus. But we'll see the conflict again today uh, in verses 13 through 17. Excuse me. That was last week's passage, verses 18 through 22. Uh, so let's read our passage today before uh, we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord, uh, his authoritative, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray that he blesses it now as we look into it this morning. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I, the life I now live in a body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Lord Jesus, as uh, your bride, your body, your flock sits before me, I pray that they would not hear me today, but Christ Jesus, they would hear you speaking through me and through your word. Please give us, uh, as we sit under the authority of your word, give us humble and receptive hearts to hear your truth. Please use your truth to shape our lives, as Jamie also prayed, 
conform us to the image of your Son, Father. And anyone here who has never put their faith in you, draw them to saving faith in Jesus, your Son, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, describing a recent uh, visit to the uh, world-renowned British Museum, Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote these words. Now, I don't know what's going on. Jeff, take me back to the British Museum. My clicker just freaked out here for a minute. So I'll just put that down while I read you Spurgeon's account of the British Museum. He writes, how similar to a Christian a person may be and yet possess no vital godliness. Walk through the British Museum and you will see all the orders of animals standing in their various places and exhibiting themselves with the utmost decency. The rhinoceros shyly retains the position in which he was set at first. The eagle soars not through the window. The wolf howls not at night. Every creature, whether bird, beast, or fish, remains in the particular glass case allotted to it. But we all know that these are not the creatures, but only the outward appearance of them. Yet in what do they differ? Certainly in nothing which you could readily see, for the well-stuffed animal is precisely like what the living animal would have been. And that eye of glass even appears to have more of brightness in it than the natural eye of the creature itself. There is a secret inward something lacking, which when it has once departed, you cannot restore. So in the churches of Christ, many who profess to know Christ are not living believers, but stuffed Christians. They possess all the externals of religion and every outward morality that you could desire. They behave with great respectability. They keep their places and there is no outward difference between them and the true believer except this vital point. They lack the life which no power on earth can possibly give. There is this essential distinction. Spiritual life is absent. This is the kind of person we see Jesus dealing with in our passage. Uh, those who, in Spurgeon's words, those who possess all the externals of religion and every outward morality that you could desire. These stuffed believers appear in the custom of fasting, the very first part of our passage today. Fasting was a, a frequent practice in Jesus' day, especially with the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. These groups went without food for various reasons. There are two things I want to mention about the custom of fasting. And first of all, we see how it's practiced in Jesus' day. Verse 18 begins, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, to begin with, Mark tells us that this custom of fasting was practiced by the disciples of John the Baptist. 
Even after John the Baptist was arrested and executed, there were many that continued to follow the teaching of John. Uh, in fact, his disciples continued as a stink group for many years. They even show up in the book of Acts that's written several years after this. The reason we find John's disciples fasting here in verse 18 is perhaps because John had recently been arrested or, or, or perhaps even already executed. And people fasted as a sign of mourning. And, and perhaps this is why John's disciples are fasting. It's also possible that uh, they simply adopted a, a more rigorous code of behavior like their teacher John had done. They could be fasting uh, as a spiritual discipline to exercise greater self-control of their bodies. So for starters, Mark tells us that John's disciples are fasting. But Mark tells us further that this custom was also practiced by the Pharisees. By this time, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had already been around for 200 years. Uh, their name meant separated ones, holy ones. And there were about 6,000 in uh, Jesus' day. That's about 1% of the population. They were very influential and they're well known for adding regulations to the word of God to prevent it from being broken. And these regulations or requirements had the effect of turning the Jewish faith into a dead, lifeless, formal religion. Their requirements also ignored the condition of a person's heart in the eyes of God. This was Jesus' own assessment of the Jewish faith in his day. And he summed it up like this in Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or as Spurgeon put it, there's no outward difference between them and the true believer except upon this vital point. They lack the life which no power on earth can possibly give them there is this essential distinction, spiritual life is absent. And among all the regulations that the Pharisee added to the law of God, there were, of course, many that had to do with fasting. Uh, even though the Old Testament only required one fast on the Day of Atonement, that's one fast a year, the Pharisees had added to this and by this time, the Pharisees are fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And one scholar writes this, that the, the Pharisees wove an increasingly intricate web of regulations around fasting, whose purpose may have been to honor the law, but whose effect was a confining and even crushing burden on human existence. They fasted for many reasons. Many were fearful of demons, and they fasted to protect themselves. Others fasted mistakenly to, for, to, to encourage God to show mercy on them and forgive them for their sins. Others fasted to humble themselves in the sight of God, and this reason in particular is pointed out by Jesus. This fasting to humble yourself before the Lord could, could easily and often did 
turned into showing off, uh, demonstrating or trying to demonstrate how spiritual you were in front of uh, other people. The Pharisees were well known for doing this. Jesus said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And one pastor comments about that disfigurement this way. They actually whitened their faces, put ashes on their heads, wore their clothes in shoddy disarray, refused to wash, and looked as forlorn as possible. In other words, kind of like you look when you get up on Saturday morning. I speak of myself. So in addition to the disciples of John, Mark tells us the Pharisees also fasted. This was their practice. It was a widely accepted practice, especially among these two groups, uh, the disciples of John and the Pharisee. But then we see next that the absence is questioned. The absence of this practice, in other words, is questioned by some. Uh, people ask Jesus, why don't his disciples fast? Look at verse 18 as it goes on. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples fast? And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. I want to remind you of the context of our passage and what took place right before this. It could very well be that these outside observers were watching Jesus and his disciples feasting at the home of Levi with other tax collectors and sinners, what we studied last Sunday morning. In the paragraph above this, Jesus had gone to Levi's house and was celebrating, uh, celebrating Levi's entrance into the kingdom of God as well as the entrance of his friends into God's kingdom. The, how they had responded to Jesus with repentance and faith, how their sins had been forgiven as a result. And so some observers are um, watching this take place and were wondering about this dramatic difference between Jesus and, and, and the disciples of John and, and the disciples of Pharisee. Night and day difference. And so they ask him and this uh, question that many believe has a hint of criticism in it. Uh, it. It was widely practiced after all, fasting that is. It was a custom. But Jesus and his men aren't, aren't, aren't fasting at all. And, and the, the sentiment is, look, Jesus, if, if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to be seen as a spiritual person who's leading a spiritual moment, you better pay attention to this custom of fasting. It sounds like the criticism the Colossian church was receiving that we read about just a minute ago. Therefore, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and, or drink and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And Paul, uh, in another place, gives the reason why they should not let anyone pass judgment on them in questions of food and drink. Because Paul writes, the Spirit of God breathing through him, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. 
fasting does not put you in a better position with God. Food does not affect your standing with God. Well, how does Jesus answer this? And, and the tone of criticism that, that kind of is left out there. Well, he goes on to answer in the next part of our passage, the custom of fasting. From there we go to the time for feasting. And Jesus tells them, this is no time for fasting. It would be completely inappropriate to fast at this point because now is the time to feast. And again, let me point out two things here. Uh, first of all, we see the presence of the bridegroom. And Christ says, people don't fast when the bridegroom's there. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is introducing us and comparing this uh, to a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding was not the weddings that you and I experienced that most of them take place on a Saturday afternoon and last into the evening, uh, maybe a good while into the evening, but we're talking about, I don't know, several hours here. A, a Jewish wedding lasted for seven days. Seven days. If a, if a widow was being remarried, uh, her wedding would last for three days. Both the, the brief ceremony and the celebration to follow. And so in this wedding ceremony or, or wedding feast, we should call it, he begins by comparing his disciples, it says, to the wedding guests in verse 19. But that's actually a reference to the friends of the groom, uh, uh, the groomsmen, uh, a group of friends who were in charge of all the details of the wedding. I mean, ladies, they had it right back then, right? You just get married and let the guy do all the dirty work. Uh, this is how it was. These were his friends, and they were expected to, to promote the success of, all the, uh, of the wedding and the wedding festivities. That was their responsibility. Uh, one man describes a wedding, sums it up like this. There was an abundance of food and wine as well as song, dance, and fun, both in the house and on the street. Uh, a Jewish wedding was essentially a block party. And so as, you, as we hear this, we think back to, to John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where they ran out of wine. That would have been a catastrophe. One of those groomsmen was looking pretty bad at that point uh, of not securing enough wine for the wedding feast. And Jesus, of course, steps in and turns water into to wine. This group of friends would accompany uh, the groom as he left his home and uh, walked through the streets to the bride's house where the bride would join their party. And then they would walk to the place where the wedding feast would be quite noisily celebrating as they walked along the way and, and uh, whooping it up. But when they arrived at the wedding ceremony, that is when the festivities would begin in earnest. That's when the celebration started. And it was all up to the groom's friends to see that everyone enjoyed themselves. 
So with that in mind, then think of how out of place it would be for the friends of the groom to be fasting at the wedding. It would have been unthinkable. How could they fast at, at such an occasion of great joy? So Jesus starts off by comparing his disciples to the groomsmen, the friend of the groom, friends of the groom. But then more importantly, he compares himself, calls himself the bridegroom. And that is especially significant because who is described as a bridegroom throughout the Old Testament? The Lord is described as the bridegroom of Israel. In the book of Hosea, the, the Lord says to Israel, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Again, in Isaiah and other places, the Lord is Israel's bridegroom. But here and elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is, is the groom. And the bride is now all those who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Remember how Paul said it in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That presentation takes place in Revelation 19 uh, where uh, John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It, is, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And here, Christ, uh, in comparison to a Jewish wedding, calls himself the bridegroom. And by doing so, claims to be God. Well, do you think the disciples picked up on this? You've got to be kidding, right? This is lost on them and everyone else present. And, but the point is, how can you fast now? The bridegroom is here. Uh, it's a time for feasting. And fasting would be completely out of place. The only people who fast at a time like this is stuffed Christians. Those who lack that principle of spiritual vitality. But then Christ goes on uh, to talk about the absence of the bridegroom. 
there will be a time when fasting is appropriate for the disciples. Look at verse 20, uh, verse 20 now. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Note that phrase, taken away from them. And that phrase reveals that the bridegroom will be removed from the wedding by force. The bridegroom will be forcibly and violently snatched away. This is Jesus, really his first hint of the violent death that awaited him. Uh, of, on the distant horizon, there are already storm clouds forming through these words here. And of course, this too goes over the heads of the disciples. But when this takes place, when the bridegroom is forcefully and violently removed, then it will be time for his disciples to fast. This, of course, refers to the period immediately after Jesus' crucifixion, when uh, Jesus said, you will see me no more, absent for three days before he gloriously rose from the grave. But this also refers to this present era that you and I now live in, this period of time when Christ is hidden from our sight. The era that one writer refers to as the long haul and lonely watches of Christian discipleship. In this era, it's completely appropriate to fast as a way to express our longing for the return of the bridegroom. Uh, John Piper, A Hunger for God, talks at length about this. Fasting can, can also be a means to renew and inflame our devotion for Christ. It, it can strip away idols that compete for our affections and refocus them solely on Christ. It doesn't have to be fasting from food. It can be fasting from social media. All those in favor? Okay, thanks both of you. It could be fasting from you fill in the blank, whatever takes the place in your affections that Christ should right, rightfully have. But fasting is not a way to earn the approval of God. He has already given us his approval in Christ. And I ask you, how, how much more approval could we get than what we have through Jesus the Son? God has fully approved us of us in Christ, declared us righteous because of the blood of Jesus. You, you simply couldn't have any more approval with the Father than you, that you already have. As Paul said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. You're free in Christ to fast. You're free in Christ not to fast. So, we see the absence of the bridegroom. Um, there will be a time when the disciples will fast. And so this is the answer to those critics who come up upon Jesus and his disciples feasting at Levi's house and say, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And he answers their criticism by telling them that it is inappropriate to fast in the presence of the bridegroom. So how do you and I avoid becoming believers like these stuffed Christians like the Pharisees 
how do you and I avoid the state where there's no outward difference between us and the true believer except we lack the life that no power on earth can give us. Where there is this essential distinction, a spiritual life is absent in us. How do we avoid becoming a stuffed Christian? Looks great on display, but there's nothing inside. Well, Jesus goes on and we find the answer in the third part of our passage. Uh, the need for forsaking. So far we've described the custom of fasting and then Jesus explained that this period was the time for feasting in verses 19 and 21. In the third part of our passage, he describes the need for forsaking, for, for forsaking, the need for leaving the old behind. And Christ uses two parables explaining that a new era has dawned that is incompatible with the old. And the old must be forsaken in favor of the new. And I want to mention three things about this need for forsaking. The first is a new patch. Jesus uses a parable about a new patch in verse 21. Christ says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. When I was growing up, I, I used to wear holes in the knees of my jeans all the time. And so my mom would buy these iron-on denim patches to cover the holes so I could keep wearing them. I hated them. And there's your faded jeans, and then there's these dark blue patches right on your knees. I know people don't patch blue jeans anymore. You know, now it's the other way. The more holes in your jeans, the better off. I'm not really sure people patch anything anymore. They just give it to goodwill, don't they? But in Jesus' era, in the poverty the extreme poverty of most people, if you get a hole in your clothing, you have to mend it because you really can't afford to go out and, and, and pick up another whatever robe at the general store. And so the problem with this was that the old garment, your favorite uh, garment had been washed so many times that it had shrunk in the process and fit perfectly. So unless you also washed, washed the patch... Sorry, it slipped out. <laughs> Unless you washed the patch and also shrunk in the patch to sew a new patch on that old favorite garment, the patch would shrink, it would tear the fabric, and it would make even a bigger hole. And Jesus tells a second parable uh, about new wine. New wine, uh, verse 22, we see this, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Uh, wine was 
often stored in, in wineskins similar to these. I think these are of modern origin. Uh, that often wine was stone, uh, uh, stored in stone jars like at the wedding in Cana. But other times it was stored in wineskins. Uh, as the wine fermented, uh, gas would be given off and it would expand and stretch the wineskin. And so they used goat skin uh, because goatskin had the ability to stretch with the wine. But if someone poured new wine into an old wineskin, a wineskin that had already been stretched, as that new wine fermented and expanded, it would obviously burst through the old wineskin. And both the wine and the wineskin would be destroyed. So, what is Christ talking about here? What's, what is this new wine? The new wine as well as the new patch is the new life that Christ brings. Christ came bringing new life and new vitality to men. Uh, John wrote this several times. In him was life. And this life was the light of men. And later, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Uh, John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, and then Paul even chimes in on this topic in Romans 6, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, or more literally, a new kind of life. There's John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are other passages we could go on. But Jesus came with new wine, that is, new life, new vitality. And this new life in Christ is completely incompatible with the Jewish faith of Jesus' day. Again, a dead, formal, lifeless religion. They cannot be mixed. Any attempt to mix a life of faith in Christ with dead works destroys both New wine is for fresh wineskins. And new life is for new creations in Christ. How do we then avoid becoming stuffed Christians? Again, no outward difference between us and the real thing, except we lack that life which nobody on earth can give us. Uh, the essential distinction between a stuffed Christian and a genuine believer is that spiritual life is absent. Listen to Pastor Ken Hughes describe this new wine and this new life through Christ. When Christ fills the wineskins of our lives, the swelling life within stretches us to new limits. The inner pressure expels unneeded things and fills every aspect of life. Those who have not yet 
had Christ take up residence in their life can scarcely imagine how fully they will be filled, how every aspect of their humanity from their intellect to their emotions will be changed. So dynamic is the new life that the old wineskins of previous religious structures must give way. Have you experienced that new life that Christ brings? as he filled you with new wine and made you a new wineskin. Is there vitality in you? Or are you a stuffed Christian? There are two ways we experience it, I believe. Two ways to experience the new wine of Christ and this new vitality. One way is when we give our lives to Christ. When we turn our backs on our old lives and respond to faith in Jesus, just like Levi did last week, who left everything to follow him. Has Christ taken up residence in your life? Has the expanding pressure of this new wine pushed out the old? Has he filled you up and changed you? Paul said it like this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we experience this new wine, this new life, this new vitality uh, that Christ gives by putting our faith in his atoning death on the cross. Have you done that? Love to talk to you about that further if you're not sure, as would any of the elders here. There's a second way we experience this new wine of Christ. And that's as we continue to walk with him and follow him. Like new fermenting wine, new life in Christ just keeps on expanding no matter how long we've been following him. It continues to shape us and bear fruit. Listen to Paul describe this ever-expanding, ever-fermenting wine in Colossians 1. He says, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Notice he doesn't say, as it also did among you on the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. It's a present tense verb. It's ongoing action. As it also does among you. We experience the new wine of Christ and that new life as we continue to walk with him and follow him. Has the new wine still filling you and expanding you no matter how long you've been a believer? Or, or, or you, you, as a wineskin... Are you starting to look a little cracked? 
dried out? You know, like an old baseball glove that's been in the basement for 20 years. Stiff and brittle. And maybe we need that new wine to fill us afresh. Maybe we need the Spirit to soften us up so that we can hold the wine again. (laughs) It's not rocket science. It's so simple, it's offensive. The wine fills you up when you spend time in his word every day or as often as you can. When you let his word seep into the recesses of your brain and reshape your thinking. When you lift up your needs to the Lord, when you cry out to him, when you talk to him, and listen to his reply in his word. It's really not hard to say, is it? And further, there's fellowship with the saints on the Lord's day. You know, can't do it on your own. never were meant to. And I hope if you, when you walk away from New Covenant Bible Church, that you will walk away with at least one thing, and that is a sound ecclesiology. Church matters to God's people. It's so simple. It's offensive. Really, that's new. How the new wine keeps coming into me? <laughs> yes, yes. We would add in service to Christ using your gifts, as He's designed you to minister to the body. Again, where does that take place? Often on in the fellowship of the saints. That's the second way we experience the new wine, because. You know, it doesn't just, we don't just get filled once when we trust Christ. That wine, as we walk with Jesus, continues to ferment and expand and grow and fill. And wow, some of us are probably really big wineskins right now because you've been following the Lord so long, but you're not going to burst because you're not dried out. And so Christ calls us and calls us and points us to this need of forsaking the old, leaving things behind and embracing the new life that he brings. He has come to bring life and vitality. I've come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. John 10.10. And so, Jesus, we pray for your new wine today. That anyone here who's never let you take up residence in their lives will allow you to come in.
and begin to fill them and expand, pushing out the old. And for those who have come to know you, Christ, and put their faith in your atoning death, may your good spirit continue to pour in new wine, that the gospel would continue to grow in us, and that we would not become an old, dried, cracked, and wrinkly wineskin. But Christ, that your wine, your vitality, your life would fill us afresh, even this morning. Savior, we pray you would do this through your good spirit who dwells in us. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.